All right, welcome back for another episode. Today we have Olivia who is going to tell us about uh, her community that she is developing called Creche, which yes, it is a French word. Um, so Olivia, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and, and what community you're developing? Absolutely, thank you so much, Carol. Um, so like you said, I'm Olivia, I'm Olivia Nash. Um, I grew up in a small town in Southern Idaho and growing up the only queer kid within you know, 50 square miles was definitely an adventure. Um, but I grew up in a pretty tight-knit, small farm community, and it wasn't until after I left that place that I really realized how important our community is and how hard it is, um, how hard it seems to cultivate it in other places. Um, given my agricultural background, I was also really interested in food, my connections around food and how we build community around food, because, you know, there's a handful of basic needs that we all have, breathing, drinking, um, and eating, and, you know, of the three, uh, food and eating seems to be one of the most solid as far as building community. So, um, my background is in environmental issues, actually. I, I focused on environmentalism because I was a little too daunted by the social issues of our society. Through my training and education in environmental topics, I quickly realized that all of our environmental issues are the result of social issues and that we're not going to be able to resolve the environmental issues without addressing our social inequity in our society. And so, uh, in college, I had um, I went to um, I went to CU Boulder, and there's a pretty strong alternative housing community there that I was pretty involved with, especially wrapped up in you know, the arts community, uh, the environmental community, sustainability, grow local stuff like that. And so that was really my introduction to intentional co-housing, housing cooperatives, co-ownership, things like that. And so. I, you know, I graduated with my degree in environmental studies. I had an emphasis on sustainable agriculture, and I'm about to continue my studies um, in a food program at NYU, but in the middle of it all, we got slammed by 2020. And it was just kind of, <laughs> it was a wild year. And me and a lot of my friends coming out of college, a lot of my, a lot of my close friends are, you know, LGBTQIA identified. Um, and not especially homonormative. Um, a lot of us identify as queer, non-binary, um, on the trans spectrum. And so, you know, we've all learned a lot about queer theory and queer communities and the, the interesting spaces that queer, L, queer and LGBT people occupy and especially the intersectionality um, in those communities around race and class and how those things uh, work together and against each other and create strong communities and factor communities. And so when COVID happened, we all were starting to feel pretty isolated. We had just graduated college. We were all about a year, year and a half out, you know, and kind of coming into the workforce, coming into the, into the quote, real world. Um, we were really missing, you know, this vibrant community that we had in, in university. And so I totally recognize that, you know, given my educational background, I have a huge amount of educational privilege. And as a trans woman, my experience has been wildly variable as well. So when COVID happened, we decided that we wanted to start talking about forming um, an intentional community. And it, at first it was just pretty simple. It was just four of us hanging out. You know, we would all hang out individually every week and then we would all hang out together every week. Uh, three of the four people were in a romantic, polyamorous relationship and I was the only one not sleeping with anyone. And so I had this kind of interesting outside view, um, you know, navigating the social dynamics of, <clears throat> 
you know, everyone, <laughs> all of them trying to navigate their relationship in COVID during the lockdowns and me. Um, I had a whole bunch of stuff going on in my own life. I lost my job because of COVID. I um, had lost my housing because of COVID. And I decided, you know, screw it. It's time for another adventure. I bought a van. I converted it into van life. And so I've spent most of the last year just kind of adventuring around the United States, um, building community wherever I can. And through it all, with the crash, the miracle of modern technology is that we've been able to continue those relationships and continue that space. And, you know, formation of community, you know, there's a formation and a break and a reformation and a break cycle um, that tends to happen. And our community was really no exception. And so in the beginning, it was four of us close friends, you know, super easy. You know, there was some implicit power dynamics, but there was a lot of already established norms that were easy to navigate. We quickly found a pretty big need in the in the local community for um, for queer people needing a safe space um, and needing a community to spend time in. And so we started talking about, well, you know, we seem to have a pretty good thing going here. What would it look like if we expanded this? Through it all, that was when we came up with the name Crush um, with a little bit of research. Um, <clears throat> and I was actually the one who had put my foot down on that. Uh, many of the members in the group weren't necessarily interested in giving a formal name. Um, they just kind of thought of it as their quote, queer family. Hmm. And for me, family is a pretty loaded word as an LGBT person. Um, you know, a lot of LGBT people experience a lot of adversity. Um, you know, homeless queer youth are the largest demographic of homeless youth in the United States. And, and there's a lot of us that have experienced a lot of trauma. And so I wanted to be really intentional about creating a more positive, safer space for us. And so um, okay. um, I had suggested the name the crush, which is an old French word that uh, is a, a crush is a hospital for orphans, which I thought was really beautiful imagery for an, um, an intentional queer community, a safer space for queer people where we could just be together and be ourselves with um, structures in place to make it safer. Because I don't think that it's possible to create a, a quote, safe space, um, because we can never know all of what everyone's bringing to the table and what their backgrounds and experiences are. So we were working really hard to create a safer space. And so, you know, through it all, there's been a lot of discussion about where our goals and intentions with this group in the short and long term. It was established pretty early that we would love to turn this into a, a more solid, more physical, uh, intentional queer co-housing kind of thing. Um, and all of our backgrounds really uh, complement that really well. You know, some of the members uh, work in education. Two of, uh, two of the members, they work with uh, disabled children in the educational system. One of them is a high school teacher. There's me with my uh, with my background in uh, environmentalism. Another person has a background in social work. And so, you know, queer community is obviously a big thing for us. And so wanting to create a safer space, we had kind of the found, we had a loose foundation of something that seemed to be working. And so we started to open the group and invite other people to join us, other um, other people in need of queer community. And so the group started to grow. Um, and that was when we started to run into some issues with power dynamics. Because in the beginning, when it was just us, you know, there was already some established norms, you know, we had established friendships. And so it was pretty easy to let things ride, you know, I could, you know, I could approach a friend about an issue that we had to have in the group. But when you're bringing in new people that have no background um, with the group, it, you know, it can pretty quickly, um, create a disequilibrium in the group because they don't have those established uh, pathways and access to power. And so um, we started having more conversations about uh, what does this look like and how do we want to navigate this? There was a lot of conflict about how do we incorporate members in the group? 
Um, you know, we're really interested in creating um, creating a career community in a safer space where everyone feels welcome, but at the same time, too much of an open door policy can encourage, um, too much of an open door policy without some level of commitment to the group can create too much of a, I don't know, just a, just not enough cohesion to keep momentum. And all of us were really interested in, in creating something that had enough momentum and enough commitment to keep going and to continue to grow. And I know I tend to chatter on and on and on. So <laughs> if you have any questions, <laughs> feel free to talk. Well, there, there was around. one word you used that I didn't know. I've never heard it before. I think you said homo something. I, it was a... Homonormative. Yes, homo I've never heard that. What, what does that mean? Right. So homonormativity is more or less this idea. Um, so in dominant culture, we have dominant ideals, right? And so we have heteronormativity, cisnormativity, things like that. You know, these kind of dominant cultural ideas about gender and power and gender roles and how relationships are air quotes supposed to look. Um, and, you know, the way people are supposed to show up in the household and in society and in culture. Uh, the idea of homonormativity is, is an idea that's gained more popularity more recently. As we have seen an expansion of LGBT rights, what we've actually seen is primarily an expansion of gay rights, not necessarily um, an expansion of rights across the entire LGBTQ spectrum. And so when it comes to homonormativity, what we've seen in in a lot of in LGBT spaces over the last few years is a mirroring of those dominant power dynamics within dominant society being mirrored, being mirrored um, within the LGBT community. You know, things like toxic masculinity and misogyny um, within, you know, especially the white gay community. We're seeing a lot more classism coming from certain members of the LGBTQ community. You know, this idea as, you know, as we've normalized gay marriage and gay relationships, that it's a lot more acceptable and almost expected for gay people, you know, to get married and have the two and a half kids and white picket fence and a dog, right? Um, the, these ideas that are kind of typical or culturally normative um, about, you know, whatever. Um, and so when we talk about homonormativity, um, you know, it's something I try to push back on because I, I, I really try to celebrate, you know, the culture of queerness and what LGBT and queer people bring to the table existing in these liminal spaces and in, and in these in-between spaces. I don't believe that, you know, you know, I don't want... I don't want lesbian cops. I don't want gay soldiers, you know. Um, incorporating minorities into oppressive power structures doesn't create liberation for anyone. Um, it just creates buy-in, and, we, and we're starting to see that. Um, last time we had chatted, I had mentioned, you know, uh, the gentrification in the, in the Denver area and how racialized it was. You know, Capitol Hill is the is kind of the gay borough in Denver, um, and historically, Denver has had a lot of economic downs but historically the city's been fairly um been fairly segregated you know there was a a large pattern of white flight um and the evacuation of inner city areas um in the united states by white people in the post-world war ii era and so you know that created these economic vacuums that typically immigrants and other oppressed and minority communities moved into. In the last 30 years, we've seen huge waves of gentrification. This is a topic of conversation everywhere, from you know, from Manhattan to Boston to Houston to Chicago, um, San Francisco, you know, the displacement of these of these liminal communities. But what we've seen in Denver, as those racial communities have been pushed out of the inner city, the white gays and lesbians have been allowed to stay, right? Mm. And so um, 
we're seeing, and so this kind of ties back to the homonormative idea of what we're seeing, uh, you know, the absorption of, of at least white gays and lesbians being absorbed into dominant culture and what they're allowed to do and what they're celebrated in doing. Um, but we're not seeing that equitably, right? So when you look at the gay rights movement, it started as the sexual revolution. And, you know, you look at the riots that kicked off the gay rights movement, um, everyone knows Stonewall um, in the 1960s. Most people, um, not as many people have heard of the Compton Cafeteria riots, which were, um, which were in San Francisco just a few months before Stonewall. And in both instances, it was trans women, um, typically sex workers, who had finally had had enough and put their foot down and fought back against, you know, uh, against power structures, against established power structures. And what we're seeing today is that, you know, those queer, trans, and especially BIPOC communities are, are, are still being marginalized. You know, Tennessee just passed a, I think it was Tennessee just passed a law saying that any restaurant that allows trans people to use their, to use their restroom now has to have a public notice saying that they use anyone of any biological sex to use any restroom. Oh, right? It's horrifically that's disgusting. discriminatory. That's disgusting. Right. Um, Wow. So now, um, yeah, I think uh, I could talk to you every week and just do a podcast <laughs> talking about a lot of different Let things. Me <laughs> <laughs> That's great. We'll have to keep talking. But to get back to, I guess, my questions um, about some of the ideas in Crush, what type of housing, but, because what, when you said about a safer place, I thought, wow, you know, think of all the LGBTQ uh, uh, centers that they used to have, but now there is more of a movement about housing. So, I mean, I don't know if that's new or not, but um, of course, of course, there's always been like lesbian land collectives and things. But um, in general, it sounds like your push is also just this is going to be a place where people live. So what have the discussions been about where are we going to live? How are we going to live? Who do we invite? It sounds like you're like, whoa, we've got more people now. This is a little different. Do you have a vision? What, what, what is going on with, and it sounds like it's going to be in Denver or somewhere in Colorado. Oh, we don't know where yet. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, Unicorn Ranch is a really fabulous example in Southern Colorado. They are a, um, an intentional queer community, primarily for trans and queer people in Southern Colorado. Uh, they bought a bunch of the land, um, and you know, there's a handful of permanent residents, and you know, they're open. People can come visit. They can come help out. You know, so you just need a place to cash. That's fine too. Um, and so, you know, we've looked at them as as potential inspiration. But honestly, the conversations around you know where do we go from here have really varied quite wildly, um, and I think they tie into broader patterns, um, broader themes within our society and our culture and our economy at this point in time. So for me, um, you know, my background is in environmental issues and especially sustainability. And so my big push is, you know, I really want something that is more sustainable. I want something that is more ethical and more equitable. You know, I'm really interested in, in sustainable food production and reducing the number of food miles between where our food is produced and where we consume it. You know, how do we, um, circling back to the themes of creating community around food, um, and especially, you know, energy consumption, our housing and building materials, um, a lot of a lot of the people in this community are around the Denver area, and you know I mentioned earlier that there's been big economic shifts in our society, and one of them is urbanization. You know the entire United States in the middle of a big wave of urbanization. You can look at satellite photos of Houston, Texas, and see a triple in size in 30 years, and that that goes back to to broad economic uh, agricultural policy changes that happened in the 1970s and 80s. 
And so as the United States has shifted from a post-industrial to a service-based economy, what we're seeing is that you know, we're seeing the erosion of rural communities because um, because of the corporate consolidation of agricultural lands, and a lot of those communities, you know, young people like myself, um, being displaced to more urban areas. And so we're seeing an interesting interesting thing happening. You know, uh, property values in urban and, and suburban areas are totally just bonkers through the roof. But what we're seeing at the same time is that property values in agricultural areas are just falling off a cliff. And that's, you know, supply and demand because as we shift from as we shifted from post-industrial to a service-based economy, um, supply and demand dictates, you know, we've seen the consolidation of people in urban spaces. And so you have more people, less area, which environmentally is actually a good thing. Um, come to find out people in urban spaces actually pollute less. What they do pollute is Manage, they produce less trash, trash, they waste less energy for heating and cooling their homes, they tend to live, um, they tend to have car- smaller carbon footprints as opposed to people in rural areas. But when you ask, you know, where, you know, we have we thought about, you know, where we want this thing to be, what might it look like, you know, coming from a from an environmental background, I can I we could do a whole series of podcasts on climate change. And oh, my yes, general advice yes. to everyone is don't buy property below the Mason-Dixon line um, or within 50 oh. miles of the coastline. Oh, because um, we're all going to be so flooded. <laughs> so that's out already. Basically, basically <laughs> the coasts are, the broader kind of themes of what we're seeing is that dry areas are getting drier and wet areas are getting wetter. So what, you know, um, and so, you know, the American Southwest, every year for the last 15 years, the United States has, has recorded the hottest summer on record. And so when we talk about, you know, where could we locate this thing, you know, there's not just, um, you know, what would be ideal, you know, there's all kinds of really cool, um, you know, urban environmentalism, um, urban agricultural sustainability, co-housing, cooperative movements in most of the major metro centers, you know, from New York to San Francisco, um, Detroit's doing really cool stuff, really exciting, um, really exciting stuff, rooftop gardens and reclaiming um, um, abandoned urban spaces. So there's a lot of really cool stuff happening, and at the same time, you know, we are millennials. So we're a group of millennials, um, and millennials today, you know, there are 40-year-old millennials, and yet millennials have about 4% of the national wealth. Um, At our age, our parents had between 6 and 8%, and the boomers had um, more than, uh, had 12 to 15%, if I would call my numbers correctly. I could try to find a source for you for that. Anyway, so millennials, A, we don't have a whole lot going, we don't have a whole lot of income for us. And that's especially recognizing that me and my peers, we are white, college-educated millennials coming from typically middle-class and upper-middle-class backgrounds, right? And so we already have an enormous amount of privilege due to our race and systemic racism, institutionalized racism, um, and, and, you know, these systems that we have been brought into that, that have been codified for us. And so we already have an enormous amount of privilege, and even still, what we're running into is that it's still a huge question of, you know, when you're looking at, you know, if you want a, a safer queer co-housing space, mm-hmm. you know, what kind of finances do you have available? And the answer is not a whole lot. <laughs> um, and so, exactly, you know, I can see making faces over there. <laughs> yeah, so, no, uh, most co-housing run a bit more for senior citizens just because of the financials. So when you say all young people, that's why I cringe, like, Ooh, yeah, where is the money? <laughs> exactly. And, you know, we've talked about that before, you know, the kind of 
serious financial outlay when you're trying to create and maintain these kinds of spaces. And so there's a whole bunch of different options and opportunities that I really think that this could go. And so we've had a lot of we've had a lot of conversations, everything from um, you know a small scale hotel, um, you know, because it's really important for me. Um, to create a space where people can come and create a stronger connection to the environment and sustainable, sustainable concepts, and especially around food. Um, and so we've talked about things like, it, like, you know, having a permaculture orchard where you know CSA members, um, community supported agricultural members, can come and pick groceries and stay at the, you know, stay at our little tiny house um, hotel. Um, we've talked about doing kind of a summer camp model, you know, buying a place that's more rural and inviting people to come out during the summers um, and create more of a pop-up community, um, you know, because again, you know, um, oppressed minorities, uh, liminal communities, um, queer people, LGBTQIA people, you know, especially BIPOC communities are still facing extraordinary oppression. And so, you know, creating pressure valves so people can leave and come to a different place, that's one potential option that we've talked about. We've also talked about, um, you know, just kind of just doing like a kind of hobby farm model of, you know, like, you know, we buy a big community house and I've seen successful models doing that in everything from Toronto, Canada to Los Angeles, where, you know, you have a group of people that go and buy a big house um, and kind of make it available to whatever kind of community they're trying to support and foster. Unfortunately, it looks like that is still a couple of years away. Um, you know, I am about to start my graduate studies across the country. Um, and and it's been interesting watching the dynamics of the crush change, especially as 2020 came to a close and the vaccine was starting to roll out and how we're, how we're seeing, you know, almost a, a complete cultural rejection of any kind of, vac any kind of like virus, virus safety measures, you know, masks are coming off. Um, I was talking to a friend and I made a joke about how, you know, it's amazing how these masks came off. If only the CDC would recommend people use their turns. <laughs> If, yeah, yeah, the, the, I love that idea. If, but I, I think that there's just no motivation. Everyone wanted that mask off, but the turn signal, exactly. some reason, that's that's a hard thing to do. <laughs> but that's pretty funny. Um, well, there was a few things you said that are very interesting. Um, I thought when you said family, you're right. There is a lot of trauma and uh, ideas that go with that. But when you are a group of people, the family you came from does make a difference and groups can mm -hmm. uh unconsciously start to do the same sort of patterns and i think you even mentioned you lived with other people i think in a like a like a rental type of i don't know if it was a house or apartment and you had i guess it was like roommates and it you already had some sort of conflict and you're like whoa <laughs> so you can you already discovered that that people bring in who they are um, um, the other thing you said, um, <clears throat> that I was thinking about is, I mean, you don't know where you'll be rural or not. And you said there's a place called Unicorn Farm Ranch. I'll have to yeah, look that Unicorn up. Unicorn Ranch in Southern Colorado. Follow them on Twitter. Sounds wonderful. Um, most, uh, LGBTQ always went to the city because that's where there was acceptance. Um, you know, how I know some of the history of how, how it all started in cities, but in general, you could go to the city and no one cared. I found even in the early 2000s, the rural parts of America, now it's starting to change. It took a while. But even in the early 2000s, there's still a lot of being in the closet and just a lot of 
I could see how, in a way, the rural areas, that's not where people want to be. They want to leave. Um, and like you said, I met some youth who were like, I have to go, or your family kicks you out, or um, it, it is better now. So I think that's interesting. If you do go to rural areas, even if it's a pop-up, like, hey, this is the country <laughs> for, for some who, or, and even some people who grow up in the city, they're scared because they're like, oh, well, they're going to be discriminatory out there in the rural area. Um, which, like I said, now is changing, or but they don't still. Want to go without their sushi. Well, yeah, there's that. They, well, yes, you, <laughs> the restaurants and all might be different. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Well, I think that's great. Well, like I said, I think we should definitely keep talking. Um, do you want more people to join Crush, or do you want to promote it now, or is that for later? Like right now, you're trying to figure out how membership and all works. Right. Um, yeah, we definitely love to have more members, um, but we don't have any established social media president. Uh, we don't have an established social media presence, and so maybe we'll do that. Um, we'll put a bookmark in that, and we'll circle back to that. Hopefully, if I can get on the show again. <laughs> so yeah, well, I definitely want you on the show because I think there's so many things we could talk about. It's just great, and and like I and I like that idea about um, you know environmentalism and that which is very important to a lot of people and climate change but it does bring a lot of people to co-housing because co-housing promises a, a lighter footprint um and then of course eco villages it's the whole premise um and and like you said food and bringing people together has always been there and that brought you to housing now um so yes we should get you uh get more uh, shows and also if anyone does want to get in touch with you, I guess they can get in touch with me and I can send it on to you. Um, and then we'll we'll keep talking, especially as Crush grows. But anytime you want to talk, because I can talk forever for you. <laughs> I like your information and all that you know. Well, thank you, Olivia. This is great. And I also think, yeah, there are a lot more topics with uh, LGBTQ feeling safe and a community. I didn't know about Unicorn Ranch. I'll have to look up some other places like that. That sounds great. I know there is a LGBTQ uh, co-housing. I think they're about a year old now in Durham, North Carolina. Um, so so there's there's things happening. <laughs> and there's definitely a need. I see a lot of people wanting, hey, let's form a community here. Let's... Or is there something here? So there's definitely... Right, you know, it's like tiny houses never got cool until middle-class white people have a business. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's there's that. Well, and then with your van life, I did want to ask, because, you know, Nomadland just won the Oscars, and um, it, one thing I like about it is you get to form a community, but if someone's bothering you or anything, you can just drive away. Did you find that, or were you more traveling in general? I mean, more traveling in general, but there's definitely enormous freedom in just, you know, carrying your house with you. And it's like, you know what? You know, you know it's like, I'm going to go to see family this weekend. I'm going to go out to this national park this weekend. And all you've got to worry about is, you know, swinging by the grocery store on your way out of town and you're good to go. You know, it's, you know, not having so many of the materialist trappings of a modern life. And I'd love to talk about that more on another show because we had talked about, you know, the rise of um we had talked about the rise of individualism and sort of the erosion of, you know, what we think of communities and, and how are people responding to that and how are people creating communities in new ways and pushing back against that. And I definitely think, you know, the van life culture and the tiny house movement, you know, reducing our carbon footprints definitely dovetail really well with a social pushback against larger economic messages that, culture, that our culture tries to indoctrinate us with. 
Well, great. Now we know what our next episode will be. We'll, we'll try it for this summer. And yes, I want to know all about because I love travel stories anyways. Like, tell us everything. <laughs> well, thank you, Olivia, for your time. I appreciate it. Let me, and please uh, forgive the background noise. Apparently, every time I start these, my boys get hungry behind me, <laughs> start cooking. 